As we began Advent last week, Andrew encouraged us to recognize and to live into the fact that the season of Advent is out of tune with the holiday season going on in the world around us. Advent and its central themes of the return of Jesus Christ and His coming again in judgment strike a, a dissonant note with much of what we find uh, this time of year, even within some of the branches of the Christian family tree. But for even those who are accustomed to Advent, it can still feel confusing at best or repulsive at worst. But like Andrew, I too find myself with every passing year longing more and more for this season of Advent. And that's because, as Andrew said, Advent has the courage to name the truth about the world in which we live. Yes, we all long for our holidays to resemble something like a Norman Rockwell painting, but the truth is our lives aren't like that at all, even if on the surface they might be picturesque. You see, I think the danger that we all face this time of year is that we can use the holiday season as a, as a way to ignore or numb the pain that we experience in our lives. It's tempting to distract ourselves with, with holiday cheer, jumping from one party to the next in order to avoid the sting of the truth, that things aren't as they should be. And Advent, it's a courageous season because it resolutely resists whitewashing. When all the world is rushing headlong into either Christmas or consumerism, Advent swims against the tide forcing us to slow down and to acknowledge the darkness that is all around. Advent holds before our eyes with daring honesty the truth that everything is not all right. And thankfully, Advent, while doing that, offers us rich uh, assortment of biblical texts and hymns that provide wisdom on how we are to respond to this troubling reality. If there was ever a book of the Bible to, to really focus in and lean in on during this season of Advent, it would be the book of Psalms. You see, Advent accentuates the tension that God's people feel as they live between Jesus' first and second coming. On the one hand, in Advent, the church delights and rejoices in the first coming of Jesus where he procured a victory for us. But on the other hand, it also mourns and yearns for things to be made right, for salvation to come to completion at the second coming of Christ. There is no single season that encompasses such an expansive horizon of human emotion. It was for that reason that the Genevan reformer John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of the soul, he said that in the book of Psalms, the Holy Spirit has drawn to life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, and perplexities. Indeed, all the emotions that we experience in this life. The Psalms are particularly instructive in equipping us to respond rightly to the complexities that we face in this life. I believe Psalm 85 was appointed for this second Sunday in Advent precisely because it's so helpful for those who long for restoration. As the church longs for things to be made right in this season, 
We would do well, as the collect said, to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the instruction that this psalm offers us. So turn with me in your bulletins to Psalm 85, and let's see how we are to respond when things are not all right. The first thing that this psalm teaches us to do when things aren't all right is to recall God's goodness in the past. And there's some debate over whether uh, exactly where this psalm was written, what the historical context of it was. It's simply introduced uh, as one of the sons, uh, one of the psalms from the sons of Korah. But the first few verses have caused many to to situate the psalm in the post-exilic period, the time when uh, they returned from the Babylonian exile, Israel did. And you see, Babylon, they came in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple in 586, and they took Israel with them to exile. But then in year 538, Cyrus permitted Israel to come back to Jerusalem. And when they returned, Jerusalem was just a mere shell of what it once was. And so you can imagine, coupled with the joy of returning back to their homeland was this sad state of affairs before them. And recalling the good things in the past only made them hurt all the more in the presence. In the present. They longed for a complete restoration. That's the tension of Advent. Christians, they've, they've tasted the goodness of God prior, but sometimes that uh, only can make us long for more goodness when it appears to be lacking in the present. But James Montgomery Boyce says, the place to start in overcoming our discouragement is by reflecting on the goodness of God towards us in the past. He says, yes, this is part of the problem, of course, because it is the unfavorable contrast between these past experiences of God's mercy and the lack of them now that has caused us to become discouraged in the first place. Yet it is also part of the solution since the goodness of God at any time is real goodness. And because it's real goodness, it's worth remembering. And it is because God is good that we have hope that all that is lost will be recovered. So let me ask, what are the past mercies that God has shown to you? We could spend all day and not even tap the surface of this, if we set our minds to it. We can start by thinking about some of the more obvious ones, the material blessings that we've received, uh, the goodness of living in a a free country, living in an age of, of penicillin, these things we shouldn't take for granted. We compare our lives to centuries past. We enjoy longer life, better health care, and substantially less poverty. You see, most of human history There wasn't even a middle class. There was simply the poor and maybe a a small percentage of the wealthy whose lives were even, uh, if compared to ours, uh, would be paling in comparison. But notice how the psalmist moves from these sort of superficial material blessings in verse 1 to greater gifts in verses 2 and 3. These same blessings in verses 2 and 3 are experienced today by God's people in a deeper sense. God has forgiven the offenses of his people. He's covered all their sins. That's the language of atonement. It's what the New Testament refers to as justification. Man's biggest need, his greatest problem, is needing to find a remedy 
for his sin. And therefore, God's greatest gift, his greatest blessing is providing just that remedy. We've all gone our own way, and we've set ourselves at odds against a holy and righteous God. And the greatest mercy that God has shown us is that he has not given us what we deserve. Instead, he has drawn near to us, and he endured himself what we deserved. This is what, indeed, the season of Christmas is all about. God the Son taking on our nature and drawing close to us so that he might be a propitiation for our sins. We don't often like to use that word propitiation sometimes. People are upset by it, but that's exactly what verse 3 is talking about. Propitiation refers to an offering that turns aside wrath. We don't like to think of a, a wrathful God, but have you ever considered that God's goodness demands that he be wrathful against the things that harm his creation? It would be unloving for a father to be unmoved when his children are being harmed. The scriptures teach that what is most wrong with the world is that man has inexplicably gone his own way, rebelling against God. And therefore, the most remarkable sign of God's goodness is that he has satisfied the righteous demands of his wrath against sin. Not by pouring it out on us, but by taking that wrath upon himself. Because of the cross of Christ, we not only get a glimpse and experience the forgiveness of of our sins, but as the Eucharistic prayer says, we get to enjoy all other benefits of His passion. These benefits include being reconciled to God, adopted as His sons and daughters, clothed with His righteousness, given the Holy Spirit that we can experience newness of life. Simply recalling these sorts of past mercies. They might be enough in and of themselves to to lift us out of the pit of despair. But if it isn't, this psalm teaches us another thing that we are to do. The first thing that we're to do when things are not all right is we are to recall God's goodness in the past, but the second thing is we are to plead with God in the present. As a dad, one of the greatest moments that I've ever had was hearing for the first time the first word of all three of my children. Up to that point in their lives, their, their vocal cords were only used to form whines and whimpers and, and primal screams. Silent communication was the norm and, and was done by pointing and usually nodding. But then all of a sudden, the light dawned. Each of their first words, they were different, but near the top of, of all of their first words was this one word, help. What it actually sounded like was, help, help. It soon developed into, help, dada. Help me, please, mama. And that one little word was all that my heart needed to be thrilled. Because that word, help, it's so instinctive for children to say to their parents. It was thrilling as as a dad to hear those words come out of my children's mouths. It didn't matter if I was in another room or if I was in the middle of something. Simply hearing that from my toddler's mouth with all of its unvarnished clumsiness was was a joy to experience, and it drove me with intense urgency to attend to their need. And if it's no accident that, that God has revealed himself as a father, 
I think my own reaction is, a, is just a dim shadow of the reaction that God has to his children's cries for help. And that's both humbling and exhilarating to think on because on the one hand, I know my limited capacity in my own sinfulness. I know firsthand how the joy and the urgency of hearing children's cries can quickly fade away. But on the other hand, it's breathtaking to consider how our Heavenly Father never grows weary of caring for us. That thrill of hearing His children's cry never gets old for Him. He's not limited by time and space, so He's he's ever present to help. How much more quickly He comes to our aid than even the best of earthly fathers. How much more infinite are the resources at His disposal. These truths encourage us to come to Him swiftly and with an honesty that doesn't need us to to pre-filter our words. Once we consider who it is that we are crying out to, we are able to avoid two common errors when it comes to fear and doubt. Often in religious contexts, emotions in general and fear and doubt in particular, they're seen as bad things. They are to be avoided, perhaps overcome. But that isn't what the Psalms teach us. On the other hand, the Psalms don't teach us to simply be subject to our emotions and express them at all costs, like like many outside of religious contexts do. Stuffing our emotions or venting our emotions, those are two errors that the psalmist always avoids. Instead, look what he does in verse 5. He says, "'Will you be displeased at us forever?' And will you stretch out your wrath from one generation to another? Will you not turn again and quicken us? The psalmists don't avoid and hide from their fears, nor do they simply succumb and express their fear and doubt. Instead, they they pray their fears. They pray their doubts. They bring their fears and doubts into the presence of Almighty God, and they, they pour them out in His presence And they process them there with their Father. The psalm teaches us to cry out to God when things are not all right because we know who it is that we are crying to. He is the maker and sustainer of all things, but even more than that, He's your Father. We must come and cry to Him, Restore us, O God. Help. And we must cry with that same sense of unveiled honesty Will you be displeased forever? So we must recall God's goodness in the past. We must cry to Him in the present. Third and finally, we must wait for God to prove Himself faithful in the future by hearkening to His Word. The psalmist, in his fear and doubt, goes to the Word of God. He says, I will hearken to hear what the the Lord God will say. He knows that what he needs the most is to hear from the Lord, so he resolves himself to wait, to wait and to listen for God to speak. And as he waits for God to speak, he wastes no time in going back to the the words that God has already spoken. Scholars believe that verse 10 is, is actually going back to one of the greatest passages in the Old Testament. 
Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Exodus 34 was a high point in the Old Testament. God had just given himself uh, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. He'd revealed himself to Moses in one of the most beautiful and, and significant revelations of himself ever recorded. He declares that uh, he is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That was what Exodus 34, 6 and 7 said. And these attributes of God, they seem paradoxical to us. How can God both be merciful and gracious and at the same time righteous and just and and full of truth? To us, it appears as if God is is in tension somehow within, within himself, but he's not in reality. That's because God isn't so much merciful as he is mercy. He does not have the quality of love so much as he is love himself. He doesn't possess righteousness so much as he's the very definition of righteousness. And the great tension of the Old Testament is how can God be true to himself in this fallen world? The question with which the Old Testament leaves us is this, how can God both forgive iniquity and yet also by no means clear the guilty? How can God be gracious and just? In the words of our psalm, how can mercy and truth meet together? What will it look like for righteousness and peace to kiss one another? Well, the psalmist either had a special glimpse into the plan of God, or he knew better than he spoke. Or he spoke better than he knew. Because if you want to know how righteousness and peace can kiss one another, just look to the cross of Christ. There the righteous judge proved himself to be gracious and merciful, not by refraining from enacting justice, but by offering himself in his beloved's place. Jesus Christ is the definitive word of peace to God's saints. He is the yes and amen to all of the Old Testament promises. He is the goal and the center of all of God's revelation. He's the sum and the substance and the very embodiment of the Word of God. He's our salvation. He's the proof of God's mercy. And at His first coming, He gave us the down payment that enables us to wait with expectant hope for the restoration of all things and the fullness of time. So my friends, no matter what the present distress is in your own life today, heed the words of Psalm 85 by recalling God's faithfulness, His goodness in the past. Plead with Him with unveiled honesty in the present and wait with great expectation for Him to prove Himself faithful in the future by hearkening to His word. Amen.